Joshua Kagi from The Christian Citizen, and this is episode 44 of Justice, Mercy, Faith. In this episode, Dr. Sarah Drummond, founding dean of Andover Newton Seminary at Yale, and Dr. Jeffrey Hagray, executive director of the American Baptist Home Mission Societies and CEO of Judson Press, join Christian Citizen editor Curtis Ramsey Lucas for a conversation on ministry and social awareness. Here now is Curtis Ramsey Lucas with Dr. Sarah Drummond and Dr. Jeffrey Hagrid. It is my pleasure to welcome to the podcast Dr. Sarah Drummond and Dr. Jeffrey Hagrid. Dr. Drummond is founding dean of Andover Newton Seminary at Yale Divinity School, and Dr. Hagray is executive director of American Baptist Home Mission Societies and Judson Press. He is also a trustee at Andover Newton. Our conversation today will focus on ministry and social awareness and the different perspectives you bring to the subject. Jeff, from your vantage point, working with clergy, and Sarah, from your perspective, working with seminarians. Jeff, I should note that I consulted with several ABHMS staff in preparing for this interview, but in the interest of journalistic integrity, I will not reveal my sources. So, my first question uh, to you, Sarah, is how do you define social awareness and its significance for ministry? Well, I'm taking the, the term to mean in this particular context, awareness about social justice and awareness of a particular community's context. Those who educate ministers use the word context a lot. Our hope is that we're educating clergy who are able to read communities and read the community's context and situation in a way that is is appropriate to the setting and not necessarily bringing the student own agenda. So when I talk about social awareness or talk about social justice awareness, I'm thinking most specifically about making sure that the ministry is relevant to the context in which it finds itself and also attentive to the gospel, namely paying attention to being of support to the least of these and to the lost. So when I say cultivating that kind of awareness, it's about helping students to both um, embrace their own um, their own passions, but also be able to embrace the passions of the context in the community as well, without blinding themselves to the needs of the context because they're so excited about their own um, calling and their own causes. Jeff, you've been a pastor and you have a pastor's heart. You've also been a denominational leader at the region level in American Baptist life and now as executive director of ABHMS and Judson Press. How have those roles informed your perspective? And do you look at things differently now that you're head of a national organization? Uh, thank you. Thank you, Curtis, and good to be with you and with Sarah. Uh, so, yes, after, uh, you know, about 20, uh, more than 20 years of pastoral experience, uh, pastoring is the primary lens through which uh, I view the ministry. That was my first love, my first passion. Uh, when I experienced a, a call to ministry. Uh, it was pretty much my assumption that I would 
be a pastor of a local church uh, throughout my life, and, um, and 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 I'm and I feel privileged to, to have that perspective because pastoring, uh, as as Sarah was mentioning, uh, always happens in a context. I've pastored in the context of an old line Baptist church in a small town in South Jersey. I've pastored in a medium-sized church in the Washington, D.C., and then a large church within, within Washington, D.C., and a church in Atlanta that was fairly large, in suburban Atlanta, and so on. And uh, in all of those experiences, I've learned to uh, understand the needs of congregation. Congregations are different. Uh, to understand how do you assess the opportunities and challenges facing congregations uh, and uh, to think about what the resources are that a congregation needs in order to be to connect with the community inside and the kit the external community outside the four walls of the church and uh, and I have a real respect for the challenges that that pastors face Sometimes there's a, there's a, a chasm between the, the vision, the heart, and the energy that a pastor brings to the ministry, and that that is had within the within the church. But in most instances, it's the pastor who is very often it's the pastor who is the object of people's either angst uh, or pleasure with what the church is doing. And I find uh, pastors often trying to bal- walk that that tightrope uh, between. Uh, uh, their desire, not in everything, because sometimes you have pastors who are not the most extroverted or engaged in community ministry and the church really wanting to be engaged in service and mission. And the pastor is very closed, introverted, intellectual, and just wants to write sermons. Uh, but um, my experience was often that of wanting to push the church to the service edge, to the missional edge, to be engaged in the external world uh, and and, and, let, and, the, and to, to, come, to persuade folks that there's always enough resources that God provides. We can do more. We can be more. We can imagine, just imagine. You know, I've, I often felt like Barney the Purple Dinosaur trying to convince congregations to imagine and pursue it. And uh, as and so now working at a national level with with the uh, American Baptist Home Mission Societies, uh, I'm very sensitive to those same challenges. That that the, the nature of the challenges have not gone away; they've only grown more complex. And uh, and even though uh, persons at the local church level, pastors especially, often opine out loud, out loud what you know, do you all understand our, what we face, the challenges that we because there's a lot of isolation and pastoral ministry actually I do and I think that pastoral ministry has as I said really privileged me to have that perspective and and being in national ministry gives me a, a sense of of those challenges across the USA having traveled to most for 50 states in, in the union uh, I've been on ranches in Wyoming and Colorado I've been in San Francisco Bay Area to New Mexico to Atlanta to Miami to New York to New England and so on and ministry there's and some of the challenges really despite context are very similar uh, there are some similarities in all those settings and then there are huge differences so yeah I'll stop there and as you uh, <laughs> course we haven't been traveling as much this past year but um as you have considered uh you know the places that you've been and even of course in the last year the the kind of uh crises that we have been through um 
as you look at that landscape, what do you consider to be some of the most pressing issues today that the church needs to be speaking about and speaking to? Wow. So, you know, as we all know, 2020 was 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 a year of historic proportions, right? Probably the most historic in our lifetimes. Uh, I, I was given to saying last year that uh, probably the year since 1968 might have been the closest thing in my lifetime to 2020 uh, for a lot of reasons, but obviously with the pandemic, with the racial unrest and social unrest, the political climate due to the general election and so on, meant that all of the pressing issues as a result of those things were laid bare. 2020 didn't so much introduce a whole new set of challenges to us in the US, but 2020 exposed and amplified and shed light, illuminated the challenges that were there all the time, but which people weren't talking about or facing honestly. And so we were forced to have national conversations about some of the critical issues, but clearly when it comes to uh, issues of uh, whether they are police brutality or racial injustice and discrimination, gender injustice, uh, the economic divides that divide rich and poor and people of color, access to resources, access to health care, access to digital technology. You know, the pandemic even exposed the uh, digital divide that exists between the haves and the have nots and so on. And people of faith are part of the community. And I'm, and I'm and I've always felt really strong and feel strongly that the church should push back against the notion that there is the church versus the community because uh, the church is part of the community. It's always a part of the, we are, we are people of faith gathered within the wider community. We pay taxes, we go to the grocery store, we shop in the same venues and so forth and so on. I'd like to say that people who go to church shop in the same uh, drug stores, uh, grocery stores, gas stations, and liquor stores as everybody else. <laughs> so we're the same people. Uh, but there's this expectation that our faith in, in God, our love for Christ, the attitudes should, 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 should somehow feel within us uh, an energy to, to make things better for people, for the least of these, for the poor, for the hurting. And, uh, and so I think churches are challenged with, uh, I think primarily it's one of finding a way uh, to uh, translate the good religion of our heads and hearts to our hands and feet. Uh, to be a bit more extroverted uh, with respect to all the wonderful things we say about God and Jesus. How do we live those things out in our daily lives with respect to the persons in need in the community surrounding us? Yeah, thank you. Sarah, um, some pastors have historically imagined their congregations as intolerant of justice-focused messages, um, almost as if there's only a certain number of Sundays when you can address uh, topics of a more political nature, perhaps. And I think we even see that bifurcation uh, in how we define the roles of clergy when we make those distinctions between pastoral and prophetic. Yet at the same time, we have emerging generations who don't make those distinctions and they want to see the church engaged in the issues of the day. How do you uh, prepare leaders to navigate the tensions between those 
perspectives within a particular community of faith. Thanks for that question, Curtis. I think you've zeroed in on one of the great challenges of educating clergy today. And I think an area that compared with other areas has changed the most dramatically over the course of the pandemic and the different uh, crises that Jeff has just uh, named. Jeff um, has been want to say in other settings where we've been together that 2020, it was the worst of times. <laughs> no cushion, no caveats, just the worst of times. So the way the Andover Newton curriculum at Yale Divinity School is organized, we build our curriculum around six competencies for ministry. The first is integration. How do we um, bring together um, conceptual theological ideas with the practice of ministry? How do we integrate those two? And how can we help our students integrate the entirety of their Master of Divinity with um, thinking like a minister, learning to think like a minister? The second area we investigate is building community. The third area is compassion and social justice. I'll tell you the fourth, fifth, and sixth because it's fun. The, the fourth area we look at, we've just completed a unit on perspicacity, the capacity to read a context and think strategically amidst it. Ministerial leadership, how do you lead a community? And then finally, uh, Christian spirituality. So those are the six competencies. I want to zero in on the compassion and social justice competency because that is the area where we are paying a lot of attention this year. Compassion and social justice could be translated as um, as pastoral care and social action or prophetic leadership. So in the words that you used of pastoral and prophetic, we cover that. We cover that by thinking about it in terms of compassion and social justice. And you're not wrong in thinking that the generation of clergy, of those who feel called to ministry, are much more, I'd say, comfortable talking about social justice, certainly than the generation that brought me to seminary, and much more comfortable talking about social justice than they are compassion. In fact, sometimes I get a sense that they're pre-offended that people whom they might bring a prophetic message might not be just desperately wanting to hear it. They're already thinking about ways to make that the congregation's faults well before they ever serve a congregation. So the challenge that we embrace at Andover Newton is helping them to understand the relationship between prophetic ministry and trust. No congregation wants to get scolded. And if the congregation doesn't feel like they can trust their pastor, they don't feel like their pastor really loves them, they're not going to hear a word the pastor says. It doesn't matter what the issue is. So we're trying to help them to understand compassion much more broadly, that Jesus had compassion for everybody, not just the people who were downtrodden, but the people who were doing the downtreading. Jesus had compassion for everyone, and who are we not to follow Jesus in that particular way? So we try to bring together the concept of compassion for all in the community with a passion for social justice. And I really think that this pandemic 
has shown us that that is the right combination. Somebody who a year and a half ago would say, no, Sarah, you really should decouple those two, pastoral ministry and prophetic ministry, totally different. I think they are seeing it differently now, or they would if they tried to push push us on this. If I were to name the two areas where we are most concerned about where we need to adjust our curriculum coming out of the pandemic, are the area of trauma ministries and social justice ministries. The world is traumatized by COVID-19. The world is traumatized by videos of George Floyd being murdered in cold blood by somebody we were taught to trust. How are we going to send ministers out there who don't know how to work with traumatized people and call ourselves a seminary? I have no idea. And we're not just talking about individuals who are traumatized. We're talking about whole communities that have been traumatized. And I'm thinking about the connections, for example, between um, uh, police violence toward black bodies coupled with the incredible disparities of outcomes in healthcare for those who um, died with COVID-19 and came from groups that have been underserved by healthcare. This is micro, this is macro. It's something that our students need to come at in a way that they're favoring the term trauma-informed. I'm thinking about it both in terms of trauma-informed stances, but deep Christian compassion is at the heart of it for me. And I think that if we can help our students know that they must come at their own communities and their whole contexts with an ethos of compassion, they might find themselves more successful in bringing a prophetic message. Because I'm not sure about how many times a month a person can preach about politics, but I know how many times, zero times, we can expect our communities to hear us if they don't believe that we um, care about them. So we can help our students learn to live that care out loud. And I think that will have good um, results on their passion projects, which are much more likely to be around social justice than anything else right now. Jeff, does that resonate with your experience, both as a as a pastor and a denominational leader, that need to uh, show love for and compassion for for a community to to move that community in a, a given direction on a prophetic concern? Uh, yes, thank you, uh, Curtis. What Sarah was sharing, uh, you know, all of that resonates with me uh, very strongly. Uh, the in pastoral ministry, having compassion, uh, and not only about the and pa- and passion, not only about the issues that we feel personally strongly about, but about the issues that are important to the congregation when we arrive. Uh, every whenever we're called to a congregation, we arrive in a community that all already has a set of prevailing concerns, predominant concerns, whatever that is. And and uh, I like that big word that uh, Sarah used that I'm not going to try to read, but it's about reading and exegeting the, the people that you serve. Uh, you know, one of the real challenges facing persons who are called to pastoral ministry also is that uh, 
your life in service is often measured through by others uh, through the lens of either their best or worst experience of a pastor or who a pastor is or who a pastor should be. If someone had a favorite pastor uh, or beloved pastor in their lifetime or unfavorable pastor or worst pastor, uh, either in their childhood or maybe in the pastor who was here just before you, <laughs> there is the risk that people in the community will will measure you against that person, good or bad, good, bad, or indifferent. And sometimes you won't even know that that is happening. And so one of the reasons why it's important to get in touch with the stories inside a congregation one-on-one to, to visit with persons in their home, uh, you know, outside of a pandemic or talk with them directly on Zoom, uh, not just in group settings, but one-to-one settings, is to really learn the stories, uh, to learn uh, and to, to hear their perspective of, of the minister. And you mentioned earlier pastors as pastors as, you know, prophets and, and as pastors. And I think that even there's some, those terms can be cumbersome, but they, they are true that pastors are very often, uh, and I see them as 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 aspects of the pastoral identity uh, that that a, that a pastor is uh, can, is is at time, is the servant leader within a beloved community, uh, and as such shapes the life of that community through disciple making, through preaching, through pastoral care and counseling. And as Sarah was saying, there's compassion and social justice go hand in hand in that context. It's an intentional community and you're helping to shape it by the gospel, by living with people and being among them. The pastor also has, uh, there's also an aspect of pastoring that is priestly. Uh, which is which is a bit different from servant leader, and that is, uh, even though we are in the free church tradition, and there's this tenet of the priesthood of all believers. Nevertheless, pastors, uh, what are the priestly aspects? Leading in worship, leading in the sacramental life of the church, baptism, communion, marriage, last rites, uh, and, and so forth. Uh, and it has to do with reconciliation, not only between God and people, but sometimes between persons where there are differences inside the community also. And while folks are often, um, you know, quick to see the pastor's engagement in the larger neighborhood and society as prophetic, very, very often we miss the priestly nature of that work. That so that when a pastor is walking alongside, or if, if folks in a Black Lives Matter rally, or a gender justice rally, or so forth and so on, or standing in between those who are seeking justice and law enforcement, that's actually it can be a priestly role uh, because the, the the notion is one of of, of saying we come in peace. Uh, we're we're coming in seat in search of a better kind the community we're, we're searching harmony uh, we're searching for harm for community for for justice for reconciliation seeking understanding seeking unity uh, there's that priestly side but in addition to the the, the pastor is as uh, a shaper of intentional community pastors priests but also pastors profit and 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 not everyone feels uh, not every person is called pastoral ministry has that strong passion around the prophetic. And I've come to really respect and appreciate that, that uh, uh, there are some pastors who are far more comfortable with the, with the hospital visit, with the counseling, with the care, with, but don't, don't really particularly feel called to uh, confront issues of injustice, social justice, and so on. 
I think at the end of the day, every pastor has to be shrewdy to his or her sense of call and what they are passionate about. Uh, and let and uh, because there's some those who are of the more prophetic ilk who are not so much of the of the pastoral care ilk. Uh, you know, they're more apt to to run down to be participate in a rally than to run down to the emergency room to be with someone who's suffering a heart attack or stroke. Uh, and but uh, but prophetic so prophetic ministry though is not limited to the ancient voices in, in the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, uh, the, it, it is, and it's not about foretelling, foretelling future events. It's it's about what what is the spirit saying? What is what is truth in this? How do we as a community honestly contend with what ha- what needs to happen here? We're, it's it's compelled by by a sense of justice, by truth, by the by the beatitudes, by the by the by the the good, the good commandment: love your neighbor as yourself, love God with all your heart. The golden rule names the human forces that are at the roots of marginalization, of oppression, disrespect, discrimination, uh, and proposes corrective action as a person of the cloth, as a person of God, as a person of faith. That is not just something limited to politicians. Uh, and because we continue to we look to the political sphere, to elected leaders, uh, but are they really the ones who have a vision of justice, of, of a just society, of, of, of fairness, of distribution? And so, so prophetic voice Voices, pastoral voices, priestly voices have a role in helping to name for society what our collective values are and how we ought to be in community, not just inside the four walls of the church, but in the wider community. So, yeah, I, I resonate with all that. You, you mentioned the, the free church uh, tradition yeah. and, and sense of call that we have. And I, I have a feeling there's a tension or a challenge or a difficulty at the heart of the free church tradition. I mean, we are we are called to ministry, right? But it is the congregation that calls the individual to the pulpit. And the, the pastor is then dependent on that congregation for their economic security. Is is it difficult then for clergy to speak prophetically when doing so may put their livelihood in jeopardy? Is that kind of an inherent tension within the free church tradition? Uh, I think it, it is very often, uh, and, and that that varies from one context to the other, depending on the uh, socio-political economic history of the community. Uh, a lot has to do with reading context. Uh, for example, there are some churches where they're very uncomfortable with the minister uh, speaking to issues of injustice and economics and deprivation and so forth. Uh, but there are other churches, like in some of the historic African-American contexts where I said, where there's an expect there's a full expectation that as a pastor is your job <laughs> to name uh, the evils that are out there uh, to be that per to be that spokesperson to be that voice uh, within the church not just of Isaiah and Amos but of Martin Luther King Jr. and of John Lewis and uh, and of the justice and the freedom fighters and so there is there is in many of those contexts not all but in many of them because even not not all African American churches are created equal <laughs> or churches of color are created equal uh, depending on their uh, particular journey and history so one has to, uh, to 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 know the congregation one has to and, and you and you don't 
And it doesn't quite work to take the attitude, well, no matter what people think, I'm going to speak in this way, lead in this way, and talk in this way. Uh, because, uh, you know, if if you're not successful in being heard, just because you're going to, you know, if, if you have this notion that I am to say in season and out of season, whatever, so am I. I, th- I think there is a responsibility. That's what, what part of what hermeneutics and homiletics is all about is, 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 is exercising some wisdom and some expertise and some proficiency in learning how to say uh, what is on one's heart to say. And, and that takes practice over time, takes skill. And one always errs on the side of love. One errs on the side of of compassion uh, for the for the community, but I but I am also a proponent of 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 being true to oneself. You know, uh, not just because the gospel teaches, but because Shakespeare teaches to that own self be true, <laughs> uh, and it will follow as sure as night follows day that you can never be untrue to anyone else. And so, um, so so I don't. I'll I'll just say this. I don't think that the minister, uh, the pastor, uh, should mu- should muzzle one's self, uh, one's voice, uh, and, and 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 not because that's bondage. Uh, so one, I think that one has to struggle to find that way, and it's not all done through the pulpit. We, we, we sometimes behave as though the pulpit is the only place through which we can speak truth to power. Sometimes it's one-on-one conversations. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's a visit to a person to better understand what their concern is and why they are why they are having a visceral reaction to talking about police brutality. And you might find in that one-on-one that they're, you know, you might learn that their father was a police officer who was killed or something like that. <laughs> you know, so, so yeah, I think... Yeah, I, I think that one that that we have more than one forum in which to preach truth to power, and we need to learn all the different ways to use our voice. Sarah, would you speak to that as well? I got the advice early in my ministry, and I'm a, an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ since 1997, that you can't ever be truly prophetic in a community from which you're pulling a paycheck. And that might have been the stupidest advice I got, and not for lack of competition. (laughs) That's really stupid advice, because it's not true in any field of work that the communal leader can just shoot their mouths off and say whatever they wish. When you're a leader in a community, you need to bring people along. And there's no excuse for being unwilling to work with people and to help them to um, see things in new ways using lots of different leadership intervention styles, the pulpit being just one of them. I've got a book coming out this summer called Sharing Leadership. And in that book, I explore this very specific question of, is the problem of um, pulling the paycheck when you're supposed to be prophetic, is that really about polity? The American Baptist Churches USA and the United Church of Christ share an ethic of congregational polity. And sometimes I think we identify all the wrong problems with the polity because this particular one shouldn't be one of the problems. There's not a CEO in corporate America who can just say whatever without 
really working with their constituents to get a sense of momentum behind them. There's not a doctor in a hospital. There's not a lawyer in a courtroom who doesn't have to think about their stakeholders. Congregational polity specifically means that in our theology, there is no cosmic level between heaven and earth. We're on earth, God is in heaven, and there isn't some intermediate space from which a minister presides. The minister presides from the community, with the community, in the community. The minister has a special designated role. And when there's conflict, sometimes the first step we have to take is very careful role clarification. When the minister is getting a ton of blowback for uh, speaking out on social justice issues, a good conversation to have will be to get those stakeholders together in the community and ask, isn't this what you pay me for? Isn't this what I do on our behalf? Aren't you bringing me here as a theologically educated person to look at the world through theological lenses and tell you what I see? Because if that's not the expectation, then we need to get on the same wavelength of about what my role actually is. I got a call maybe, I don't know, eight or 10 years ago uh, from a uh, uh, constituent church leader saying that their pastor was getting pushed out. Their pastor was getting ridden out on a rail because he wouldn't stop talking about whatever war our country was waging in that moment. And um, the congregation member wasn't part of the leadership team and was very upset and thought that maybe I could, um, you know, just show up and tell the leadership team to stop trying to fire their their minister who happened to be one of our alums. And of course, uh, that's not my job. And I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't um, ever, you know, get out of my lane that way. But I did listen and I did try to offer some perspective and comfort. And the perspective and comfort really came in the form of, are you sure that's all that's going on? Are you sure that's all that's going on? Because this doesn't really add up to me. A lot of pastors are upset about the war and a lot of pastors have veterans in their communities who maybe aren't hearing the message the way it's intended. And the person insisted, absolutely not. It was not two weeks before I found out that the minister who got ridden out on a rail had an inappropriate relationship with a member of the congregation and that was the cause now does that mean that nobody ever really gets fired for prophetic leadership of course not but what it says is that there was inappropriateness there was toxicity there was untrustworthiness that was happening just underneath the surface that maybe was coming out with critique of preaching but really there was a an unhealthy relationship because only an unhealthy relationship between a pastor and a congregation is going to lead them toward what would seem on the on the surface to be really drastic action. So again, I, I just don't think that this is about a congregational polity issue. I've got lots of Episcopal priest friends. I've got lots of Roman Catholics in my life. They can't just say whatever either. Of course not. Just that the pressure is coming from a different direction. Yeah, and uh, I, yeah. I, uh, I agree so strongly. I do want to add another caveat to this and that is that uh, prophetic preaching is not mere political commentary 
Uh, prophetic preaching is prophetic primarily by virtue of being rooted in the word, uh, rooted in the scriptures. And uh, in those scripture, in those traditions, uh, like both Baptist and UCC, where scripture is, 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 has authority, uh, I like to think of it as prophetic preaching is really uh, uh, analyzing the times in light of the text. It starts with the text and God's view of beloved community, God's vision of justice and so forth and so on. And I've found across the years that uh, one can talk about God's vision of beloved community and and, and if you don't get around to naming a particular thing in the news one time, uh, still lay a foundation. Uh, I think I think what the, what the prophetic uh, preaching does is it lays a biblical foundation for justice, for truth, uh, God's vision for equality, and so forth. And so and so. And I think very often uh, when we're just spouting off about whatever we're reading in the newspaper, when we make the newspaper the text for the sermon versus uh, the scriptures, the text for the sermon, uh, then that's just, you know, for people who watch CNN and MSNBC or Fox all day, every day, that just becomes one more con. Somebody else's another pundit. The prophet is not a pundit. Uh, the prophet is someone who helps to interpret uh, spiritual truth and the gospel uh, for the faith or the faithful. Thank you. I, I want to talk just a little bit, maybe pivot here about the changing nature of of ministry, um, and that's with respect to bivocational or part time ministry, um, which is certainly a trend within mainline denominations. Um, we recently published an article by um, Rachel Lawrence, who is herself a bivocational pastor working in uh, both the church and academia. And she looks at this as a parallel trend within the church and the academy uh, with respect to many colleges and universities relying on adjunct faculty. How does, um, and Sarah, if you could take a crack at this, how does theological education need to adapt to that reality in which fewer graduates will be able to find full-time employment in congregations? Well, I like to push back on the premise, premises behind the question of bivocationalism before answering questions. Sure. And I hope you don't find me rude as I, I do so, but I actually really resist the term bivocational because it suggests that people who are ministers but don't serve a congregation full-time are somehow other. That vocational suggests you're a pastor full-time in a congregation and everybody else needs some sort of prefix or suffix in order to be real. I don't accept or embrace that term because in 2021 years of Christian ministry, the period of time where ministry was a nine to five job, it was a flash in the pan. Ministry is a calling that's lived out through professions and the whole concept of the nine to five job was a product of the industrial revolution and the early modern era that we now pine for as though everything was so much better during those times. 
during those times, I wouldn't have been the dean of Andover Newton Seminary at Yale Divinity School because I don't check the right demographic boxes to do so. So yeah, I'm not all that nostalgic about those days. How do we prepare students to understand ministry broadly? How do we prepare them to be ready for whatever the job market is doing? Now, that's a different question, and I think it's actually a really exciting question. One of the dimensions of the um, Im embedded partnership that Andover Newton formed with Yale University was the promise of students being able to cross-train in different fields. So, for example, our Master of Divinity students are required in order to earn an Andover Newton diploma to take courses in the School of Management, which helps them to imagine a future where they could serve in many different kinds of settings. Furthermore, our students are in a university setting where they're exposed to all these different professional schools that have all the same questions. These fields are changing really quickly. Whenever I start feeling sorry for myself that I don't know how to prepare people for the church of tomorrow and all of the ways in which it's changing, I just think to myself, well, hey, at least I'm not the dean of a journalism school. <laughs> now that would be really hard. This, at least I've got colleagues like Jeff that I can call and say, what are you seeing? What are you hearing? And finally, I'll, I'll say, Curtis, there is this assumption in denominational leadership settings that the jobs in full-time ministry are going to somehow get harder to get over time because of churches getting smaller, not being able to afford full-time pastors or, or that sort of shift. But I've got to say that the sociology of religion scholars I trust, when I ask them what's really going on in the ministry job market in the locally governed traditions, they'll say, we don't know. We can't figure it out. So how it is that I, from my armchair here in New Haven, Connecticut, can read a job market, the sociologists who have all this training on how to read demographic trends can't quite make predictions about, takes me off the hook quite a bit. Here's what we know is happening. There are fewer people coming to seminary wanting to serve congregations who need to thus cross train and be prepared to be of ministerial service in other kinds of contexts. Okay, fewer people are coming. We've never seen a tsunami tidal wave of retirements like the one that we are just on the edge of as the boomers make that final move. Those who are making that final move are in many cases uh, people who entered ministry when it was a completely different field from what it is now. They entered ministry because they wanted to be the sage on the stage. They wanted to be the respected scholar in town. And they had to go through a huge adjustment that in many cases left them very cynical. Our students don't have that. Our students are really much more excited about new monasticism and the grassroots style of leadership that harkens back actually to the early church, not the modern era, not the industrial revolution. So again, I, I, I am very skeptical about false nostalgia. I'm very skeptical about prognostication about the future of the ministry job market because not just demographic trends that are much more complicated than churches are getting smaller. There's so much else going on there. 
furthermore, I think that the church of tomorrow looks like something we can't picture right now. So for us to give a cynical message to prospective students actually enacts brain drain when what we need is all of their wisdom, all of their excitement, and all of their optimism to build the church of the future that we don't know exactly how to serve, but we think that the future is in their little noggins, and we want to draw it out. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I have to chime in on, on this conversation also because I share uh, uh, Sarah's perspective on the, on these issues. Uh, I am frequently asked about uh, bivocational ministry and churches who say that they are looking for a bivocational pastor. And I always feel some kind of way about that phrase. Uh, I always push back against it uh, because one, I think that if whether one is bivocational or not is really something one that is primarily driven by the person uh, as pastor uh, vocation I like to say the vocation is is rooted in vocare the voice and, and Abram followed the voice and, and 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 every person must follow his or her own voice and if that voice calls one to pastoral ministry to serve in a congregation uh, uh, where God guides God provides and somehow in these uh, 2021 years uh, God has always provided uh, for ministry for persons who've uh, longer than that even for Abraham and Sarah when they followed the, the voice God provided God made a way out of no way I mean that's part of the ethos of one of the cliches of the faith particularly the tradition that I come from God always provides I've never seen the righteous forsaken nor God's seed beg for bread and it's always miraculous how God provides whether in a small church or big church uh, and the fact of the matter is, it is, is I challenge churches to be more precise uh, and saying that we have, uh, you know, no, you're not looking for a part-time pastor. You have part-time pay, okay? And there's a difference. Uh, you can only compensate a person uh, based on part-time and, and just stop there. It's enough to simply say that. It's enough to simply say uh, our church needs a pastor. Uh, we the compensation we can provide is that's more honest. Uh, and then uh, the minister uh, can make a, a judgment or a determination about whether they can afford ministry in this country. You never know. Uh, for all you know, there's some pastors who are who who may come with resources independently. Maybe they've invested. Maybe they've left a job uh, in Wall Street. They're few and far between, but uh, but some people come back uh, with with different resources, uh, and and but but and and ministers and clergy have always been entrepreneurial and enterprising in terms of how they make the ends meet. And surprisingly for some, even full-time pastors have to be enterprising uh, and entrepreneurial depending on family size, economy, location in terms of how they make that. So what I push for in the conversation is greater honesty on the part of the church about, uh, and, and part of it is the church's ability uh, to be authentic about their economic constraints or wherewithal or capacity or limitations or fears. Uh, and uh, my first pastor in South Jersey, I went there as a full-time pastor right out of Yale Divinity School, not even knowing that I was getting a part-time salary. <laughs> I 
was there a whole year before I realized that the salary was part time and that other pastors in the city were making more than twice the amount uh, that I was making. It was not. An, and, and at some point, one of the de- couple of deacons in the church got together and says, you know, we didn't tell you this, but pastors of this church have always had another job in addition to help me. Well, I, because I was single, didn't have a family and it was just me. Uh, it, and there was a parsonage. So my housing was taken care of. I really didn't think about that. I wasn't making any real money. And uh, but here's what happened. Eventually, the voice within me, uh, I was actually doing some work at a nearby college, Stockton State College. I was visiting. I was volunteering. And the president of the college invited me to consider a counseling job. She was like, well, you know, Dr. Vera King Ferris. Uh, and she was an African-American. She's, she's died. She's deceased now. And uh, I would have a suit and tie on all of it every day. And I would come to these community meetings that she would host. And Dr. Vera King Ferris says, you know, I, I always enjoy it when you come to our campus, uh, not only because you're a trained minister and you're a pastor, but uh, you're a black man in a suit in a suit and and my students particularly my black students they need to see a black man in a suit and i would love it if you would consider this house i ended up working full-time at stockton state college it's now richard stockton university because dr Vera king ferris wanted to see more black men in suits as it turned out that campus uh became a place where i off where i met students students faculty and staff of Stockton started worshiping at my church uh, as I got to know, as I began to move around the camp, and I did not even see that coming. Um, so it turned out, but it was, it was, it was not driven by financial need. It was driven by an opportunity to engage the community outside, which then led for an opportunity that I never saw before going. But but yeah, I, I just wanted to push back on that term bivocational and, I, and, and ask for a greater honesty in it, because the church's inability to speak honestly about their finances. Uh, it should not that should never morph into some uh, some new definition of what pastoral ministry ought to be. I think that the definition of pastoral ministry is what really we've been talking about this whole hour. Pastoral ministry evolves. Mm. It always has. And I think that the endurance of the Christian um, the Christian faith community, the endurance of the gospel itself, has everything to do with its adaptability and the way in which it um, takes different shapes in different contexts and at different moments. As I was um, talking earlier about the very brief period of time where ministry was uh, kind of hemmed into this particular nine to five kind of job being very, very brief. I've been beating that drum for a long time, trying to um, stop um, basically devaluing people who are only part-time in a congregation as somehow not wholly a minister. I've been beating that drum forever, but I don't really have to beat it anymore because guess who's doing it for me? The gig economy. The gig economy is changing the way everybody talks about work. And it's lifting the veil off the fact that there just aren't that many people who only have one thing going professionally if they have a servant's heart. 
Jeff shared a little bit about his first ministry. Let me tell you a little bit about mine. My first job out of Harvard Divinity School, I was 20 hours a week as the assistant pastor of North Prospect Church in in, um, Porter Square, Cambridge. I was working um, a little bit more than 20 hours a week running a first-year student dorm at Harvard College. I had a a 15-hour-a-week job running a leadership development program for undergraduates who were paired as mentors with students in first-year dorms at Harvard. And I was teaching aerobics six to eight times a week. So if you put that all together, that's way more than 40 hours a week. I was very skinny because I was teaching aerobics all the time and I didn't have time to eat. But I was well into my 40s before I had my first one job job. For us to give the impression to people entering ministry that there's something very wrong with the situation when they're cobbling things together cuts them off from so many opportunities. I wouldn't trade those first year student dorm days for anything. If you want to do pastoral care in a crisis situation, CPE is for babies. Try dealing with a first year student who has gotten themselves arrested at two o'clock in the morning and is underage, but won't give you the number to call their mom. Now that's CPE. I would hold that up to any crisis I've managed as uh, ones where you have to use good judgment and also a lot of compassion and a lot of concern for justice at the same time. The reason I am pretty comfortable speaking in front of groups of people is that I literally had to jump around in my underwear six to eight times a week as an aerobics instructor. After you've had to give coaching and counsel while you yourself are that out of breath and have no way to hide behind some kind of robe, self-consciousness is really not on the menu anymore. So again, I think that um, when we are looking to the future of ministry, of course, we need to think more about social justice and context. And of course, we have to think about compassion and post-traumatic kinds of ministries in new ways now that we didn't before. But ministry is the best job. It is such a fascinating and wonderful path to take. So anytime I hear ways in which we're holding up yesterday's ministry is somehow more interesting than today's, I just think to myself how lucky I feel to be alive right now. I think in some ways it's uh, maybe maybe part of the prophetic task is being honest about um our own history. I mean, I, we see that uh, in, in church life with, uh, you know, the changing nature of Christian education within the local community, right? We have this model of uh, Sunday school, for example, and we somehow think that, you know, must go back to the dawn of time, but it's a very small sliver of church history where you had a model of Sunday school. So how does that need to change in a changing reality where that doesn't really work for people anymore, maybe, Uh, but that's not the end of uh, discipleship formation in a congregational setting. Jeff, as we uh, navigate the crises we've been through and and um, what gives you hope uh, as a denominational leader? What gives you hope about uh, the future of the church? Well, uh, one of the, I, I'm happy you ask that because one of the primary things that gives me a lot of hope is that the Holy Spirit continues to call persons to the ministry. 
uh, in all shapes, forms, uh, from all walks of life, backgrounds, citizens, uh, uh, backgrounds, cultures, uh, skin color, uh, gender identity and orientation, uh, economic background, uh, and, and, and ideologies. Uh, and, and God calls them uh, and puts in them that, that passion. Uh, persons continue uh, to experience passion. I, I like to think of the burning bush that Moses saw out there uh, on, on, on Mount, on that Mount as, as, as a metaphor uh, for uh, the burning passion that will not go away. And, and, and I love call stories and, and, and I love to read the different call stories and talk about it. And for Moses, the call came in the form of a passion that would not go away. It was his, the, his people back there in Egypt, still in slavery. Uh, and uh, and, and, and he, the closer he looked at his passion and came to terms with the burning passion that would not go away, the more he heard the voice of God calling him to do something about it. And God continues to call uh, persons. And they don't all see themselves standing behind a pulpit in a neo-Gothic cathedral. Uh, they don't all see themselves uh, on a church staff or sitting behind a pipe organ or doing any number of things. But that does not take away from the, the sense of call. One of the things that we have uh, begun in the home mission societies is what is called the co-creators incubator. And uh, we basically invite people from across the country who are doing ministry in creative way, creative ways for us, but it's it's what they are passionate about. Uh, and in many respects, history repeats itself because when I think back on uh, the home mission societies in the 1800s was commissioning missionaries who went across the U U.S. They planted churches, started schools, started colleges and so forth. Some were ordained, some were not. So when I look at those co-creators, persons that we give grants to, to help them with their, uh, some are doing work with environmental or creation care and creation justice. Others are doing work with film and helping per, and, sh and through, through media, helping to tell stories about different people who are suffering and so forth. Uh, there's another woman who's a co-creator who, who's doing things with, 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 with women who are moms at home, many of them, uh, single moms and so for, and finding resources in order to, to to make the ends meet and to have a full and productive life not only as moms but as persons and that's her sense of call and uh, so I think uh, the, the fact that God uh, the Holy Spirit continues to call persons to ministry persons continue to grapple with what am I to do with this call what am I to do in response to the voice and that we continue to have seminaries who are answering the call to train uh, uh, persons in, in, in ministry and to help them uh, places where spiritual formation so happens, where where the study of, of the book or many books so happens, uh, where uh, collegiality with others who are also in discernment around call. So I have hope for the future and for the future of ministry and for the future of church because I believe God is calling. I don't think that the if there's anything like a percentage or a ratio of people going being called or something if you can call it in i don't think that number has gone down at all 
uh, and, and I think that part of the challenge facing us is, as, as, as the church, as we do spiritual formation with, with people of all ages, but especially young people, is to help persons discern ministry call, help persons discern that sense of call to, to vocation. And, uh, but I, I think the call is still alive and well, and I'm happy about that. Sarah, what, what gives you hope for the future? Well, Jeff stole my answer because I think <laughs> my source of hope is our actual students. But I would go a step further and say conversations like these give me a lot of hope because they remind me that we've got some good work that we're doing and good work ahead of us when it comes to defining what it is we're trying to do here. There were so many assumptions about what the church is that didn't add up for me 25, 30 years ago. Now those assumptions are giving way and we're having to say what it is that we're trying to do. And I find that very refreshing. COVID and the racial unrest of 2020, now 2021, is really forcing us to define some terms and set a direction based on that new clarity. And I find that clarity to be really energizing. I'm at a point at Andover Newton where I'm able to put into sound bites what used to be a really big, long paragraph about what it is that we try to do. We are preparing our students for faith community leadership and for faith leadership in communities whose mission isn't about religion. Faith community leadership, in our case, in a Christian seminary's case, is how do we teach a person to work with a group of people that's decided to practice Christianity together? We have students who serve in institutions whose mission might be education or medical healing, but they're there to provide faith leadership in that context. Just the fact that I'm talking about what it is to be a church in terms of a group of people that have come together to practice Christianity, as opposed to just the church tossing it off like everybody means the same thing by it, that's a new reality. And it's one I'm really hopeful about because when we pull the assumptions away, we see this incredible relevance of having communities that are truth-telling, justice-loving, compassion-giving in every locale in our nation and world. That is something I can get my head around and can get my life to, to which I could dedicate my life much more readily than some dusty old version of the church, capital T, capital C. So yes, I'm really not going to mourn the assumptions that are dying. And I'm excited about the freedom that comes with letting them fall away. Well, I wanna thank you both for a very uh, rich and rewarding conversation, Dr. Drummond and Dr. Hagray. I wanna thank you both for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you so much, Curtis. It's good to be with you. And thank you, uh, Curtis. Thank you, Jeff. 
uh, for this opportunity and to your listeners. Thanks for hearing us out and giving us this opportunity to think together and out loud. And I would like to encourage our listeners to visit ChristianCitizen.us for stories that are provocative, timely, and relevant to the issues and concerns of our day. While there, be sure to subscribe to our newsletter to receive weekly notification of news stories, as well as links to this podcast and articles of interest from other publications. Thank you for being with us today. At The Christian Citizen, we're passionate about justice, mercy, and faith. We produce award-winning content that is provocative, timely, and relevant. What started 25 years ago as a print-only publication is now a digital-first, multi-platform publication. We've added an award-winning weekly e-newsletter, this podcast, and a growing presence on social media. Now, for the first time, we're adding a member support program, Christian Citizen Ambassadors. Learn more about how you can support our work at christiancitizen.us slash members. Thank you to this week's guests, Dr. Sarah Drummond and Dr. Jeffrey Hagray. Our theme music is Eye of the Beholder by Fabian Tell. The Christian Citizen is edited by Curtis Ramsey Lucas and is a publication of the American Baptist Home Mission Societies. The show, website, and newsletter are produced by myself, Joshua Kagi. Stories are copy edited by Hannah Estefanos. Our art director is Danny Ellison. The Christian Citizen editorial board is Dr. Jeffrey Hagre, Laura Alden, Susan Gottschall, Dr. Jeffrey Johnson, the Reverend Salvador Oriana, the Reverend Dr. Marilyn Turner Triplett, and the Reverend Cassandra Karkoff Williams. And our advisors are Sherilyn Crow, the Reverend Kimberly Payton Jones, the Reverend Stephen D. Martin, the Reverend Marvin A. McMichael, and the Reverend Harold Dean. To learn more about the Christian Citizen, visit our website, ChristianCitizen.us. That concludes this episode of Justice, Mercy, Faith. Thanks for listening.